our scripture reading today is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understanding nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived in the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness is, sorry, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But, we have, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. There's the rest of you. Hey guys. Good of you to turn up. I'm just joking. Um, all right. Uh, we're nearly finished with 1 Timothy. Uh, next week will be our last uh, Sunday, looking at that for a little while. Um, I ended last Sunday by saying this, and I'll begin by saying it again. Um, it's, it's been kind of tricky, hasn't it? And there's been parts of this that I know have been uh, hard. It's been, uh, basically make us feel weird, make us, make us kind of crawl a little bit, or say amen, or everything in between. Um, in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders, and he told them, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that's something that our elders want to be able to say to you and be able to say to Jesus one day, that we did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so our goal is really to, to preach all of the Bible, right? We want to be, uh, we want to preach the Old Testament, we want to preach the New Testament. Uh, we want to be in the Gospels and, and in the Psalms and wisdom literature and, and Paul's letters. Um, we need the whole counsel of God. It's all needed. It's all really important. It all shows us who God is. It all points us to Jesus. Um, but it's not all the same, right? And there are some parts that are particularly difficult, like making our way through Luke's gospel. I don't know if you felt this. Um, it's just amazing to walk with Jesus, right? Um, it's, it's amazing to uh, just look at his life, hear his teaching, see what he says, watch him interact with suffering people, uh, widows and the poor, um, see him go to the cross to deal with our sins. Like, this is incredible stuff. That's the, the core of our faith, right? Um, and it's difficult in many ways. Like, Jesus said some really difficult things to, to kind of wrap our minds around and align with. But Luke's gospel is, is kind of different than making our way through 1 Timothy. I don't know if you felt that at all. Um, it's a different kind of writing. It's, it's a different context, different authors, um, Luke and Paul, they have different reasons for writing. And, and interestingly, they both tell us the reason that they're writing. 
So Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, says that after he followed all things closely for some time, he's writing an, an orderly account of the Jesus story so that we may have certainty. That's why Luke wrote. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, he says the reason for writing to, one, to, to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus is so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And I think right there, I think that verse kind of sums up why we find 1 Timothy difficult. Um, we, we've seen through the letter that the church is a household. It's, it's the family of God that's made up of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. We've seen there's various roles within the household. There's overseers, there's deacons, uh, there's ones that lead, there's one that teach. There's describes very much a family in a sense. But, but in another sense, if you look at it in a, at a different angle, we're all children, right? We're all children of God in the household. And if you've spent any time around children at all, you know there's this natural instinct within them to push back against instructions on how to behave, right? And, and that's something that we never really grow out of. And so if you're like me, I'm not saying oh, some of you are like this. If you're like me, then you don't really like being told, here's how you should behave, right? I want to figure that out for myself. I, I want to determine uh, what's best for me and how to do that in my own life. Every single one of us are born with that, and we never really grow out of it. And so every time we open up God's word, we're presented with a choice, really, aren't we? Um, we're, we, we can either, there's really two possible responses to God's word. One is to humble ourselves and tremble at it. The other is to harden our hearts and reject it. And we can either hear his word and, and humbly follow his commands, the way we ought to conduct ourselves, or we can try to find our own way. And, and I'm not saying... That it's, that it's plain to see, right? It's, it's just easy to, to see what, what those ways are. Um, the, the scriptures are not always black and white, right? Some of it is plain to see, um, some of it isn't. And so it takes time, right? It takes patience, it takes prayer, it takes togetherness to, to figure that out. Um, not everything that we've looked at in 1 Timothy is black and white. Some of it has been, some of it hasn't been. Um, but our goal as we work our way through it is to do it with humility, and with patience and with prayer. And, and, and ultimately, the goal is always to humble, our, humble ourselves and to tremble at God's word and to obey, um, to live in the way that he has called us to behave and conduct ourselves. I think there's just something really uh, powerful about recognizing that, right? Um, that, that even as adults, we, we still have something in us that, that pushes back against being told how we ought to behave. Um, I find that in myself. Uh, do you find that in yourself still? Some of you? I do. Um, so let's pray. Um, Father, would you, uh, would you give us humble hearts? It's been prayed already, but I'll ask it again. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us humble hearts? And would you help us to confess that we are not creation, uh, that we are creation, that we are not creator? Um, we have blind spots. We have fleshly desires that still kind of get in our way, and so we need you. And would you help us? Lord, by your spirit, would we together today with unveiled faces behold your glory and be transformed into your image from one degree of glory to the next? Would you do that for us? And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I said at the start of the series that Paul really has two kind of broad repeating themes or concerns through his letter. He has the concern for proper conduct in the household of God, um, and he has a, a concern for false teachers in the church. 
And Paul just, he kind of drifts back and forth between those two concerns. He never really leaves one behind. In fact, they're, they're mostly kind of interwoven. Um, but here, towards the end of his letter, he, he shifts his attention back to false teachers. And his, his main focus in this section really revolve around materialism and money. Um, and he, he, like I said at the start, he's, Paul's goal is to, to kind of open up our hearts and peer deep inside of them and, and see what kind of desires are there. It sounds like fun, right? Nope. Hate that. Don't want that. That's his goal. What's, what's inside of there? And really in the, the first 10 verses here of, of chapter 6, he has a charge to or about false teachers, and he's a charge to the, the Christian community. Okay, Let's look at it. End of verse 2. Um, that's one of those kind of clunkily, uh, the, the chapter and verse numbers in your Bible, they're not original manuscript. Paul wasn't saying, okay, chapter one, verse, they, those were put in afterwards. Sometimes they're helpful. Sometimes they kind of get in their way. This is one of those spots where like, we don't really know how to break into uh, chapter two into two sections. So they kind of broke it into half. Um, but, so we'll start in 2C. Paul says, teach and urge these things. Cool. Uh, teach and urge what things, Paul? Is, is this one of those, those lines that's kind of wrapping up a previous section? Or is he looking ahead and introducing a new thought? I think it's probably both. Um, he's, he's nearing the end of his letter. He's, he's starting to wrap things up. And he's, he's looking back over all that he's, he's, he's said, over all the instruction that he's given. And he tells Timothy, teach and urge these things to the church, Timothy. Plead with them to live in this way. Um, right, if we're truly the household of God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth that he says we are, how do we know what those things are? Right? How, how are we to know what's the truth? What, what's the conduct uh, that we are to live by? by? By being taught, he tells us here. Right? Leaders in the church teach these things to the household. God reveals these truths to us in his word, and someone must teach them to the family. Um, do you see how Paul's two concerns kind of overlap? He wants us to, to know how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to live. We're a, a, a beacon of truth in, a world, in the world, right? And those, those truths and those conducts are revealed in God's Word. And so we must have teachers who teach God's Word truthfully. Hence, his second concern of false teachers in the church who are, who are leading people astray, away from God. He says, teach and urge these things. Um, I try not to do a lot of like uh, original language Greek. I think it's a little bit obnoxious and whatever. Um, but I'm going to do it this time. That word urge, it means, it's this Greek word parakaleo. And I think a lot of you might be familiar with that. It para means next to. It means beside. Right? This is the picture of, of what the teacher is meant to do. They, they come alongside. They come close. They come next to someone and they encourage them and they, they plead with them. They, they teach them. They, they point them in the right direction. That's what the teachers are to do. But it's really special because in John chapter 4, when Jesus, before he's uh, arrested and crucified and ascends to, uh, raised from the dead, ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples around a dinner table, he says, listen guys, I'm about to leave you, uh, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Okay? I'm, I'm bringing you into a family. You're not orphans. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to send you the helper. And this is this word paraclete. Right? It's, this, it's the same root word as that word urge in, chapter, in verse 2. Right? The Holy Spirit, he comes near to us. So close to us that he actually indwells us. He's beside us. And what does he do? He, he encourages us. And he pleads with us. 
He teaches us. He reminds us of the words of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And Paul is saying, listen, the teaching in the church is a Holy Spirit-filled event, right? It's, 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 it's actually him at work. And he, he lives in, in all of the members of the household, and you are to let him loose in a way and actually join him in what he, is, in what he does in his work, in the work of urging and teaching. And there's, there's a proper way to do that. And he, he says one of the elements that you need is, is the right teachers teaching the right thing in the church. And so in verse 3, Paul speaks about these false teachers again, and he, he describes them as anyone that teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And Paul kind of presents two teachers there, right? Timothy, teach and urge these things, these things that I've, I, I've, I've written to you, and also watch out for anyone who teaches a different doctrine, another doctrine. It's, it's heresy. Jesus, he speaks about false teachers in the Sermon on the Mount, remember, and he's, he says, beware of them because they'll come into you with sheep's clothing, but inside they're ravenous wolves. And here Paul describes their, their different doctrine in verse 3. He says, they, they do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Uh, that, that word sound, it literally means healthy, right? The, the, the teachers don't agree with the, the healthy, sound words of Jesus, right? So what do we want? We want the healthy teaching, right? So in a way, sometimes it's helpful to, let's flip it upside down, look at it in the opposite, and see what Paul is saying about correct, healthy doctrine, right? What's the doctrine that should be being taught and urged in the church? Well, he kind of characterizes it in two ways. Firstly, it consists of the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? What does that mean? Consist of the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. There, there's a few options uh, to choose from, which you sounds familiar in this in when we've taught through this. There's a few ways we can kind of look at that and hear that. Um, one underway, one way to understand it is that Paul is saying that the teaching is about Christ, right? And we want that, right? We want to teach you about Jesus. But Paul's teaching hasn't been exclusively about the person of Jesus Christ, right? There's times that it, that it is, but there's other times where it seems broader. So I don't know if that's the best way to, to understand that. Another way to look at it is that Paul is referring to the words of Christ, right? We want that. We want to teach you what Jesus taught, teach you what Jesus said. That's a good thing. Uh, maybe it's a gospel. Maybe it's a collection of the sayings of Jesus. But again, even Paul, he seldom quotes the actual words of Jesus, so I don't know if that's the best way to understand it. A third way of looking at it is that Paul is saying that the teaching should come from Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, and I think it is, then Paul is saying something incredible to Timothy. He's saying the instructions that I've given to you here, they come from Jesus. Right? You, you should regard this, this letter as Christ's own teaching. Actually, Jesus affirms that kind of thinking. Remember back in Luke chapter 10 when he sends out the 72 he says, those who, who hear you, hear me. Those who reject you, reject me. There's this, there's this authority that he sends them out with. There's this representativeness that he sends them out with. And Paul has that. You saw it at the opening of the letter. Remember, Paul introduces himself as, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. What does he say exactly? An apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Right? He's been sent by God been sent by Jesus. That word apostle means this messenger. 
And you see how this plays out in, in Paul's life. In, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, twice Paul says to the brothers and sisters, I command you in the name of Jesus, or with the authority of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 13, 3, he says, Christ is speaking in me. That's incredible. Right? Paul, as a, as a chosen apostle of Jesus Christ, and by command of him, he, he, he is able to command and exhort in the name of Jesus, or with the authority of Jesus. So when Paul says, teach and urge these things, Timothy, that are written in this letter, and he's saying, Timothy and the church in Ephesus here, and for Village in 2023, should regard this as the words of Jesus. Right? We, we submit to this as the word of God. So to uh, apply that in our situation, our, the, the teachers in Village, we must teach you the words that came from Jesus. Right? Our job is not to, to stand up here and give you some, some, some of our ideas that maybe align with Jesus, that maybe sound like Jesus. Right? That's not the job. Our job is to give you his teaching. The, the teaching should come from Jesus. It should come from his word. There's interpretation involved there, but it's, it's, it's from here. And the second thing that Paul says about correct, healthy teaching is it should accord with godliness. And that word accord is a really beautiful word. It means downwards or down towards. It's, you should have the, a picture of a flowing river. Downstream, what flows from this teaching is godliness. Right? What this teaching produces downriver is godliness. Isn't that beautiful? So in a way, Paul gives these like, two essential marks of sound teaching. It comes from Christ, and it promotes godliness. And so if you look back at the false teachers again in verse 4, he says, anybody who disagrees with it is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Um, there's times when Paul speaks very bluntly, right? Um, there's some translations put those two phrases together. The J.B. Phillips version says, he's a conceited idiot. The Revised English Bible says he's a pompous ignoramus. Like, however you translate it, it's strong language from Paul towards these false teachers. But again, they're, they're guilty of a serious offense, that they are deviating from the faith, that their teaching disagrees with the sound words of Jesus. It does not accord in godliness. This is a serious thing. Keep going in verse 5. In addition to being arrogant and ignorant, the false teacher has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce, what is it, what flows from it? Godliness? No. What, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Right, so in those two verses, Paul paints this picture of the false teacher. And notice he portrays him as sick, as an unhealthy craving that, that mirrors the, the healthy teaching of Jesus. Right? The, the correct apostolic teaching is sound and healthy. His is opposite of that. And keep your finger there and turn back a page or two to chapter 3. Look again at the qualifications of overseers. I think when you compare these things, it's, it's easy to see that Paul is describing in chapter 6, really the anti-overseer. He says the false teacher is, is puffed up in chapter 6. 
When in chapter 3, verse 6, make sure he's not puffed up. Make sure he's not a recent comfort that will lead him to being puffed up with conceit. Same line, same words. In chapter 6, the false teacher understands nothing. In chapter 3, he says, make sure overseers are sober-minded, self-controlled, able to teach. Really, that word self, self-controlled, it's, it's speaking of the mind. They have a sound mind, that they have wisdom, they have prudence. In chapter 6, the false teacher has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels. Chapter 3, make sure the overseers are not quarrelsome. Chapter 6, the false teacher produces envy, dissension, slander. In chapter 3, make sure your overseers are respectable. Not violent, but gentle. Chapter 6, the false teacher produces evil suspicions, constant friction among people. But they, they've forgotten that, that fellowship is built on trust, not on suspicion. They, they, they stir up friction. They, they raise the anxiety. They, the irritability among people is stirred. This is what their teaching produces. This is what their conversations produce. In chapter 3, qualified overseers bring unity. That they calm things down rather than stirring things up. They, they care for God's church. False teachers divide God's church. In chapter 6, the, the evil, uh, these evils are characteristic of people who have depraved, of, depraved or corrupt in mind, who are deprived of the truth. They've been robbed of the truth. Right? When people's minds are twisted, all their relationships become twisted as well. False teachers, they, they deviate from the truth. They divide the truth. Healthy overseers, they unite the church. Keep reading in chapter 5. Put the next slide, Paul, and put the scripture back up. It's chapter, uh, verse 5 again. Um, another symptom of false teachers' depraved mind and loss of truth is they think godliness is a means to financial gain. He says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Um, that's a tricky one. Right? So apparently, false teachers, remember Jesus says, they can look like sheep, but inside they're wolves. And in, in, in chapter 5, we looked at last week, sometimes there's sins that, that remain hidden and they take time. So, so sometimes they can teach godliness. It, it sounds like they're teaching accords with godliness, but underneath is bad motives. When, when you peer into their hearts, they actually have no interest in godliness itself, but only if it produces earthly gain, financial profitability. Chapter 3 says, make sure the overseers are not lovers of money. Right? Paul says, make sure they're, they're not in it for earthly materialistic gain. Yes, chapter 5, uh, if they do the job well, they're worthy of double honor. Yes, he says, the laborer deserves his wages. But if they're a lover of money, if they're in this for financial gain, it's a matter of time before it all comes crashing down. You see in these verses, he's, he's speaking about what grips the teacher's heart the most. Yes, there's gain involved, right? But these false teachers, they're missing something in the equation. It's not godliness equals gain. The proper equation is godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Right, so not only are they, they missing contentment, they're actually settling for a lesser reward. They're after earthly treasures, while Jesus is offering something far greater than this world can offer. 
a far greater gain, a far greater satisfaction for your soul. That greater gain is eternal life. Look at that next week, right? An eternity in the presence of Jesus. This river of, of water flowing from the throne room of God. This is what the great gain is. We'll never experience suffering again. Right? We'll never experience need or want or lack of joy for the rest of eternity. Content, godliness with contentment is great gain. But the false teachers are lovers of money. They're in it for earthly gain. Um, I'll talk about contentment more in a second, but um, John Stott points out that really looking at those verses 3 to 5, we get these three practical tests by which we evaluate all teaching. Firstly, is it, is it compatible with the apostolic faith? Is it, is it teaching that comes from Jesus? Is it, is it from God's Word? Secondly, does it unite or divide the church? And thirdly, does it promote godliness with contentment or covetousness? Right? Those, are, that's, those are three practical questions that you should regularly ask of the teaching that you receive in village. Look at the next, next verses in verses 6 to 10. Paul kind of shifts his focus. He, he turns from speaking about the false teachers and he gives a charge to the church. Um, read those verses again. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Um, who's Paul speaking to there? Um, in a way, he's, he's speaking to the wider congregation, right? These are truths for everyone to hear, everyone to accept and apply to their lives. Um, but we also need to recognize that the church is made up of different kinds of people, right? We have different, uh, that's a beautiful thing, right? Diversity in, in, in everything within the church. We're not all the same. There's, as I mentioned last week, there's young there's old, there's, there's Jew and Greek, we don't have a lot of Jews, but there's male and female, there's immature and mature, and there's a material reality to our diversity as well. Some of us have less, some of us have more. Most of us are somewhere along in between, right? Just in this, just in the, in this church alone, we see in, in Ephesus, they had Christians who were poor and Christians who were wealthy. And it's the same for our congregation, right? Some of you come from wealthy families. Um, some of you come from poorer families. Some of you worked long and hard careers. Some of you are just beginning careers. Some of you have more than enough. Some of you are just making ends meet. That's the church. It's beautiful. And Paul's not making any morality claims on the amount of money in your, in your bank account, right? But he is speaking to different groups here. And some commentators think that Paul is speaking really specifically to poorer Christians in verses 6 to 10. He also has a specific word for wealthy Christians that we'll look at next week in verse 17. We won't get into that now, but he says, as for the rich in this present age, and, and you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't scold them. Why? Because having money isn't sinful. So, so we, he has a charge for them in that passage. We won't jump ahead. But... but 
Are the two groups of people to kind of disregard what Paul says to the other? Absolutely not. Okay, he, Paul wants us to, to listen to all the teaching, to take heed of all the teaching, while paying particular attention when he speaks directly to certain groups who may be in different contexts. Okay? So have that in mind as we look at verses 6 to 10. Everyone, regardless of how much money is in your bank account, listen in, apply this to your life. But if this speaks directly to you in your particular situation, listen up. Maybe you feel like, man, I'm lacking money. I'm making men's eat, ends meet here. If that's you, Paul is telling you, be godly and be content, for there's great gain for you. Be godly and be content, because there's great gain for you. It's interesting that he says that right after saying about the false teachers that they think godliness is as a means of gain, right? We think, oh, that's preposterous, right? That's, well, yes, but Paul, in a way, he kind of undermines that, not by contradicting it and saying the opposite, but by confirming it in a way. John Calvin said, in an elegant manner and with an ironical turn, Paul quickly throws back at his opponents the same words, but with opposite meanings, right? So in a way, Paul agrees, godliness is gain, even great gain, providing that you're talking about spiritual gain and not earthly physical gain, not financial gain, and providing that you also add contentment. Um, if you remember back in chapter 4, uh, Al preached on this. Paul uh, was talking about godliness and training for godliness, and he, he said that it has value for all things, right? That, that it does bring blessing for both this life and the next. So, so in a way, Paul agrees that godliness brings blessing, but do you see how he both agrees with that statement and he completely undermines it by saying that the following verses, the, the gain is not material gain, physical riches. The great gain is heavenly riches, riches that are stored up in heaven, riches that cannot be taken away. They are eternal gain. And the kicker is it's only for those who are content with what they have in life. It's only for those who, have, who are content with what they have, right? There is great gain for you who are godly with contentment. There's more to life than earthly riches. Are you living according to that truth? What we see in the New Testament is Christian contentment does not depend on external things. And Paul exemplified this in his own life. Um, remember Philippians chapter 4, um, he said, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. That's what Paul's learned in whatever situation he's in. And he describes it. He says, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the key? Says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? That section is about contentment and joy, whatever your station in life. Right? Whether you have abundance or whether you are in need, Paul's hope didn't fluctuate. His hope didn't go up and down. His joy didn't go up and down. He's able to go through that, anything, with contentment and joy. And what's the secret? Have Jesus. Does that have Jesus? Right? Paul had Jesus so he could endure anything. He was content because he had Jesus. In, in Philippians 3, Paul compares everything next to knowing Jesus. 
and he says nothing compares, especially the great things. He actually uses that word gain. Notice that in chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. He later calls those things rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ, the greater gain. Jesus is better. Right? Paul, Paul says, I have Jesus. What else do I need? What, what else can I possibly want? Nothing is better. So it doesn't matter how high I get or how low I get. I'm content because I have Jesus. Stott points out that Paul's secret to contentment was not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. So godliness plus contentment equals great spiritual gain. In verses 7 to 8, Paul explains the contented life, especially for the poor, especially if you have less. And I don't think he's talking about extreme poverty here. And I, I don't think Jesus was either in, in Luke chapter 12 when he said not to worry about food and clothing. And so, so we easily take verses out of context and just kind of use them in, in various ways. So don't take the, words, the, the verses out of context. Isn't, he's not talking about extreme destitution. Rather, this is those actually who do have the basic necessity, necessities for survival. In verse 8, it says we have food and clothing and we're content with that. Um, but look again at Paul's argument for contentment in verse 7. Verse 7, he, he brilliantly paints a picture of, of an entire human lifespan in a single sentence. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. It, right, in a single sentence, he takes us from birth to death. Job said the same thing. Remember, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. Right, we, are, we are all born naked and penniless. And when we die, we leave the world naked and penniless. And I mentioned last week, we have, a, we have a young congregation, right? So I know a lot of us haven't really had to encounter death face to face, but if you've ever been with someone when they die, you'll know the truth of that verse. And I, I was in the room when all three of my children took their first breath. It's amazing. And, but I also got to hold my dad's hand when he exhaled his last and it's astonishing how, in a way, those two experiences are, are not too far apart. They're extremely different in many ways, but, but in terms of, of earthly possessions, our entry and our exit are identical. John Stott, he wrote, so our life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. Isn't that amazing? Our life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness, we brought nothing with us and can take nothing away with us. As the officiating minister said at the funeral of a wealthy lady, when asked by the curious how much she had left, she left everything, he said. It is a perspective which should influence our economic lifestyle, for possessions are only the traveling luggage of time. They are not the stuff of eternity. It would be sensible, therefore, to travel light, and as Jesus commanded us not to store up for ourselves, that is, accumulate selfishly treasures on earth. It's the traveling luggage of time. They're not the stuff of eternity. If that's the, the reality of our entry and our exit in the world, then what should our attitude be to material things on the brief journey? Well, Paul actually gives us two answers to that question. 
and I look at them backwards without getting too far ahead, he does say in verse 17 that it's okay to enjoy them. Right? We, we don't set our hopes on earthly riches, but it's okay to enjoy them. Right? God provided, enjoy what he provides. Um, Paul's not speaking, he's not calling for austerity and asceticism. Okay, God provides. It's okay to enjoy what he provides. But firstly, and most importantly, our attitude should be contentment. If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. If we have food and clothing, that'll do. That should remind you of what Jesus said in in Luke 12. Remember that? When he was calling us not to be anxious and fearful, and he specifically mentions what you will eat and what you will put on your body, right? Food and, and clothing. So it's interesting that Paul uses that as well. And Jesus was calling us to trust in our Heavenly Father, but, but both in Luke 12 and in 1 Timothy 6, both Jesus and Paul, they, they want to highlight a specific sin that's serious, and that sin is covetousness. They're calling for contentment in the place of materialism and covetousness. And he speaks into this from verse 9. This is a warning for those who desire to be rich, right? So remember the context, okay? He's probably speaking directly to those in the church who are poor. Okay, if you have food and clothing, be content. But let me give you a warning against the desire to be rich, covetousness, greed. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into a trap into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Is that the case for everyone who has money? Obviously not. Like I know people in our church, some of you are wealthier and you haven't been plunged into destruction and ruin. Uh, Praise the Lord. Be careful, okay? But again, he's not speaking about money. He's speaking about the desire for it. He's he's not speaking about the, the external. He's speaking about what's going on inside of a person's heart. Note those words in verses 9 and 10, desire, love of, craving. What's he pointing to? He's, he's pointing to what's going on inside of your heart. He wants to reveal what's in there. What are the longings in your heart? What do you desire? What do you crave? What is it? Money? The great house? The best clothes? The amazing holiday? Earthly comfort and rest? Or do you long for Jesus? Do you long to be in his presence like that psalmist? Paul's telling these real-life Christians, they're real, who have real-life earthly needs, be careful of thinking that what you most need is more resources, more money, when actually what you most need is Jesus. What do you most want? What do you love the most? What do you desire? 
He says, if you desire to be rich, you are on a path to destruction. Look at those three things he says in verse 9. For those who desire to be rich, they fall into a a temptation and a trap. They, They do for themselves what they pray God will never do to them. They lead themselves into temptation they, they, they trap, the trap they fall into is surely the devil's. Through their greed, he ensnares them in materialism and moral compromise. Secondly, covetous people fall into many foolish and harmful desires. Greed is a sinful desire, but it's a desire that leads to more sinful desires. John Salt said, for money is a drug, and covetousness is drug addiction. Are all drugs bad? No, nope, some are very useful, but the desire for them is sinful. He says, the more you have, the more you want. One scholar said, gold is like seawater. The more one drinks of it, the thirstier one becomes. Paul says, beware of these foolish and harmful desires. The third and final stage in the downfall of of the covetous is their wrong desires plunge them into ruin and destruction. Right? You see the irony that their heart is set on gain, but they end in total loss. The loss of integrity, the loss of themselves. As Jesus said, what is good for man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's hard, isn't it? Again, money isn't the problem, although it's, it's really worth being cautious of. The problem is the desire for it. You've probably heard verse 10 many times before. You've probably heard it incorrectly, though, right? You have to read it carefully, and Paul says, the love of money, what's that? The covetousness The greed is a root, not the only root, but a root of all kinds of evils. Plural. Again, you have this river. What is it? What flows from it? What flows from greed is selfishness, cheating, fraud, robbery, envy, quarreling, hatred, even violence and murder. But Paul, he's, he's wanting us to examine the heart, right? What's in there? What, what kind of desires are there? What do you want? What do you love? What do you crave? He's saying that there are some sinful cravings that will lead you away from the faith. They will lead you away from Jesus into many pangs, into many griefs, right? You think money will solve all of your problems? Paul says the opposite is true. The love of it will lead you into even more grief, more pangs. We must desire Christ the most. Whether we've been brought low or whether we're facing a place of abundance, whether we're facing plenty or hunger, abundance or need, we must first desire Christ. He's the only one that can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Whatever you long for, church, Jesus is better. In fact, all of your desires, they're actually longings for Jesus. Right? All of your desires, the clothes, the shoes, the the house, the the money, the car, those are actually your longing for Jesus. Whether you know it or not, that's the truth. You've, You've been designed to have these desires. You've been designed to have these extreme longings, but you've been designed to find those things in Jesus. Paul's saying, don't misplace your desires. Misplaced desires will lead you astray quicker than the false teacher will. I think one of the the overarching lessons that you get from verses 3 to 10 is the importance of examining motives. 
right? Examine the motives of the teachers in your church. Are they false teachers? Are they teaching a different doctrine that does not agree with the teaching that comes from Jesus, the teaching that, that leads to godliness, the teaching that unites the church, but, but a teaching that, that leads to division? Do they, do they have, have greedy motives in their teaching? Godliness for a means of gain? Do that. Paul says also examine the motives in your own heart. What do I desire? What do I long for? Those are, when's the last time you asked those kind of questions? Ask those kinds of questions daily. Like any time you make a decision, am I trying to, to, to fill a longing in my heart that can only be met by Jesus? What am I craving? It is, maybe it's like a promotion. Why am I going for this promotion? More money? More resources so I can get this? Or is this an opportunity to serve Jesus and expand his kingdom in a new way? Jesus, don't touch that. No, everything is Jesus's. Your, your promotion, Jesus has to say in that. What about when you just sit down and look at your finances or your lack of? <laughs> are you content or are you desiring more? What are you craving? Are you trying to satisfy a desire that can only be met by Jesus? Um, we'll look next week. We'll end by seeing that Paul ends his letter to Timothy by pointing him and the church in Ephesus to Jesus. He paints this beautiful picture of Jesus. He's far greater. He's far more satisfying. And Paul points out he's coming again. He's coming again, and when he do, until he does, we must not allow our hearts to be pulled away by the things of this world. Okay? These things will pass away. These things, we, we cannot take them with us when we die, but we get Jesus, right? He's the greatest gain. He's the greatest reward any of us could imagine. So, Paul says, live with godliness and contentment. That's the call for the church. Um, would you stand with me and we'll, we'll pray. And let's just, let's just have a, a brief moment of self-reflection. Examine your heart. Ask yourself those questions. Careful, because your heart's tricky. Your heart will try to trick you. <laughs> so try to peel back the layers. What do I crave? What do I desire? Why do I want that thing? If you're anything like the psalmist, your heart is thirsty. Your soul is longing. But don't misplace the thing that is going to satisfy that longing. It's only Jesus. So Father, we thank you that uh, you give us Jesus. We thank you that, that in the gospel you, you make a way for us to have the, the, the deepest longings of our hearts satisfied. You quench our thirst. Yes, one day in the future for all of eternity, but you also do it right here, right now, when we come to Jesus. Lord, this is, this is a... Um, this is probably more 
difficult than even some of the some other things we've looked at. Men and women, stuff like this grips every single one of our hearts. Would you reveal what's in there, Lord? Jesus, we thank you that, that you, you go to the cross in our place, not just to take away our sin, not just so we can get into heaven, but also so that we can spend eternity with you. Complete satisfaction, total joy. Lord, would you convince us of that this morning? Would you help us to see that that is what we long for? Would you help us to um, figure out what it looks like to live accordingly? And that's going to look like saying no to some stuff, leaving some things behind, being content with some things that are lesser in our eyes. May we be content with what we have, what you've given us, and pursue you, Jesus. Come, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.